Welcome to Attend Children's Church at this time. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to see you today. I'm so grateful you're here. And would you go ahead and open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 this morning. And we'll close out chapter 3 and step into chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open one of those black ones that are in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, you'll find Romans chapter 3 on page 999 in that pew Bible. And also, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. You'll hear, you'll hear me reference him multiple times this morning. Uh, it was a, a letter, not a book, but it was a letter written to Christians uh, who were in various churches in the city of Rome. Uh, and uh, it's a powerful, powerful explanation of the gospel. We're studying through it uh, just about every Sunday in 2022. So we're in Romans chapter 3, verse 27 through 412 this morning. Uh, for sure, there are moments in our lives that change us forever, events that happen once and then life is never the same. I've got a few of those and so do you. Uh, one, I can think of the, the first time I met my wife. Everything was different after that moment. Uh, I think also of the first time I met each of my four daughters. Those were incredible life-changing moments. I think also of the first time I met a dessert called Bananas Foster. I'll never forget it. <laughs> Changed my life in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, if you have not met Bananas Foster, I hope I just set you free this morning. Put it on your to-do list just as soon as possible. It's remarkable. The central life-changing moment for me, though, has absolutely been uh, the moment I heard the gospel and believed. I was 15 years old. Uh, my life, uh, my family's lives were a bit of a mess, and um, it changed me. Jesus Christ radically changed my life. And I, I don't know that I could have articulated what that change was when I was 15. I just knew things were different and they're never going to be the same. And I wonder if you, as a follower of Jesus, have a similar story. You remember what it was to, to turn your life to Christ, or that moment that you realized Christ is my Lord and Savior. And maybe you've seen changes in your life. Without a doubt, a faith in Christ changes a person. To the very core of our soul, the center of our being, we're changed people from the inside out. Now, some different things happen to that change over the course of a lifetime. Sometimes that change that has gone to the core of our being may seem to fade a bit. Could be because of the persistence of sin in our lives. Could be because of different situations we face, crises that we have to walk through that sometimes hurt us and our trust in the Lord. It could be the voice of an internal objector or an outside critic who would say, how can believing something really change you? That just doesn't make any sense. You're not really changed. You're not so totally different. You just believe something a bit different than what someone else believes. But I want you to understand that there's change that comes when we put our faith in Christ and we are justified by God through that faith, there's a change that comes to the very core of our being. And whether that change may struggle over the course of our life or at various times or face challengers from the outside, 
It's a difference that remains because of the powerful gospel of Christ in our lives. And this is where Paul helps us this morning. He's helping us process and understand the difference that justification by faith makes in a person's life. We've finally arrived at the good news here in our study of Romans. In our study of Romans so far, we've spent multiple weeks with these heavy words from Paul as he describes the total sinfulness of all mankind. But last week, in the middle of chapter 3, we finally got to the good news that sinful people can be declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ, not through any works of our own, not by any religious deed I've done, not by any sin I avoid, but through faith in Christ crucified, I'm declared righteous by God. And now that that good news has been given to us by Paul, Paul continues to support his argument with, uh, with arguing his case, why it is that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not enough to just state this and then move on to some other subject matter. He continues to build his argument so that we, his readers, would understand and be reassured and that anyone on the outside of the faith could hear and also believe. So as we move into chapter 4, Paul calls on some powerful testimony to argue his case. He calls in Abraham and he calls in David, these heroes of the faith, to support his argument that justification is by faith in Christ. And it's by showing that Abraham especially is the prototype for all Christians that Paul helps us see the true power of faith in Christ to transform a person. Do you need change? Do you want to be different? Are you tired of struggling with the same sin over and over? Do you struggle with doubt? You as a follower of Christ often look in the mirror and accuse yourself of being horrible, of being unworthy, of even being unsaved. Well, Paul speaks to us this morning to give us the reassurance that faith in Christ changes us inside and out. So my goal today is to show you the changes that come to a person's life when we experience justification through faith in Christ. What difference does that faith make in us? And our passage identifies three major changes that take place in the believer's life. So follow along with me as I read. I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 27. And I'm going to read to the middle of chapter 4. So Paul says this. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. 
But to the one who does not work but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that the righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. So in our passage this morning, Paul continues to strengthen his argument that justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. And he does that by identifying three major changes that take place in the believer's life when they turn to Jesus by faith. What are those three changes? Well, the first of those three changes is this. It's a change from praise of self to the praise of God. We change from being worshipers of ourself, exalters of ourself, to being exalters of God. So verse 27 opens with an issue that echoes throughout chapter 4. We'll come back to it again in the near future. It's the issue of boasting. And so look at Paul's question in verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? If, if justification is by faith in Christ, and if he's the one who was crucified, if he, going back to what we studied last week, if Jesus is the mercy seat, the person in place where our atonement is accomplished, if it is in Christ why, where then is my boasting? What reason or grounds would I or anyone else have to boast in ourselves? Paul says, verse 27, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So since Jesus is the person in place where our redemption is accomplished, we have no grounds for boasting. And what sort of boasting is Paul talking about here? Well, he's talking about a boasting in one's self-righteousness. It's boasting that exalts a sinful life or sinful pursuits and then claims to be blessed by God. It's boasting that excludes those who are unlike the boaster. I'm on the inside, you're on the outside. This person would claim to be in God's favor, and yet they're full of pride and arrogance and venom towards others. It's the sort of boasting that would make much of myself and completely diminish the work of Christ. Now, boasting is, is one of those sins that we don't talk a lot about in the church, even though it is all over the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. I would venture a guess that not many of us in here have identified boasting as a sin we need to repent from and we need to be sanctified from. We, we would identify all kinds of other sins as worse. These other sins are far more serious, boasting not so much. Case in point, if I were to ask you, what sin does Paul target at the end of Romans chapter 1, what would you say? 
you would say, Paul talks about homosexuality. Well, that's true. But we would answer that to the exclusion of chapter 1, verse 30, where Paul clearly describes boasting as a sin that marks unsaved people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, we can easily recite the first two characteristics of love, maybe even the first three. Love is patient. Love is kind. Can we quote the third one? Love does not envy. But that fourth characteristic, that's not... That's not on our uh, Christian posters, and that's not in our memory classes. Love is not boastful. It is not arrogant. But we, we don't think about boasting with the seriousness that the Bible thinks about it. And so what does boasting look like in the Christian's life today? It can look like a lot of different things, quite frankly. Um, social media is a beautiful platform to boast in oneself. Social media, by its very definition, allows us to create a version of ourselves that is detached from the reality of who we are. And so we are projecting an image that is not really true to who we are, to how we think, to how we live. Uh, this sort of self-exaltation comes through in so many different ways. It could be an inner sense of superiority. It could be a, a common practice. The key word for describing it today is called virtue signaling. So virtue signaling is when we publicly express an opinion in order to demonstrate our own good character. We speak into the fray so that those who hear our opinions think well of us. Or we claim a moral high ground because of an opinion we espouse. And we do that stuff all the time, and this, brothers and sisters, is boasting, and it is not becoming of people of faith. And so Paul says, what do we have to boast about? How are we going to look at our opinions on any given thing and say, this is what makes me good before God, or good in the eyes of culture and society? How are we going to boast in these things when it's Christ who was crucified? This sort of boasting is done with, for sure. And Paul isn't done here on this point, he continues in this section to ask us some more searching questions. In verse 29, he says, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? So you can imagine this imaginary objector that Paul is targeting with his questions and with his argumentation, a person from a Jewish background that might say, well, because I'm a Jew, I'm so much better than those who are not Jews. Paul says God is the God of Gentiles too. Verse 30, since there's one God who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the circumcised through faith. So if you were to boast in your ethnic or social or national identity to the exclusion of those on the outside, that practice is finished according to Paul. God's blessing is not by default with one particular nation, but with those from every nation who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the result is a church made up of people from every nation and tribe and people and language. And Paul's final question in verse 31, he says, do we then nullify the law through faith? Well, absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So justification by faith doesn't do away with God's law. It only clarifies our relationship to it. Here's the clarification that's needed. We don't view the law as the reason we're justified, but rather as a response to our justification. 
The law is not the reason any person is justified. I'm not justified because I keep the law, because guess what? No one keeps the law. There's no one righteous. No, not one, is what Paul told us last week in chapter 3. No one keeps the law. Every one of us are lawbreakers. But rather, we keep God's law as a response to a free justification that is through faith in Christ. And for the Christian, all of God's law can be summed up in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Doing those things does not earn us our salvation, but rather it's the response to our justification through faith. So the person whose faith is in Christ lives a life of praise that looks like unity with believers from every possible background, and it looks like obedience to the Word of God. I'm not someone who's having a parade in my own honor everywhere I go as I talk about what I've accomplished, but rather, in humility, I unite myself with brothers and sisters who, like me, from various backgrounds, have put their faith in Christ, and together we work to fulfill the commands of God, to love Him with all we have, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The person who boasts in their self-righteousness, can can you think about how damaging that is? How destructive that practice is? That person diminishes Christ, creates disunity in the church, and lives in blatant disobedience to the Word of God. But the one who has Christ as their Savior through faith is the person who's received God's free gift of justification And has changed from a praiser of self to a praiser of God. That's a tremendous change that takes place in the heart of the believer. So the first change in our life is from someone who praises ourselves to someone who praises God instead. He gets the glory for all that he's done in us. And the second change that takes place in a believer's life is a change from ungodly to righteous. We go from ungodly to righteous. So chapter 4 opens with Paul bringing Abraham to the witness stand, so to speak. Paul, remember, is building this argument, thinking about an imaginary objector. You can imagine this objector saying something like, Paul, this all sounds nice, but Abraham wasn't saved through faith in Jesus. And if Abraham wasn't saved that way, why should we be saved this way? And so... Paul does a deep dive on Abraham's justification through all of chapter 4. And so, in chapter 4, Paul says this, starting in verse 1, he says, What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So, the question at hand is, how was Abraham justified? Was he justified because of his works or because... He cut his flesh or some other law-keeping thing, or was it by some other means entirely? Paul's posing this question because it's essential for every Christian to understand our salvation that we know how Abraham, the father of our faith, was saved, so to speak. And so Paul asks this most important question in verse 3 as he's considering Abraham. He says this, for what does Scripture say? What a great question. What does Scripture say? Paul, what about Abraham? Paul's response, what does Scripture say? Not what does Paul say, what does Scripture say? Do you ask yourself that question when you run into crisis? 
When, when you come before God in prayer, when you have a trial in your life and you don't have an answer for it, or you need a piece of wisdom, do you ask yourself that question? What does Scripture say? I hope you do. I hope every week it's a regular question you ask yourself. I'm, I'm stepping into this thing. I need to know what does Scripture say because there we have the authoritative and compassionate voice of God. Once spoken, still speaking, the authoritative voice on all matters of faith and practice. What does Scripture say? And so Paul then takes us to Scripture. He takes us to the book of Genesis. Let me remind you first of the story of Abraham. We first meet Abraham, then named Abram, as he's about to leave his home country in Ur of the Chaldeans. It's modern-day Iraq. God called him out of there and promised to show him another land and promised to bless all peoples on earth through him. We meet Abram first at the end of Genesis chapter 11, and his story begins in earnest in Genesis chapter 12. After calling him out of this place and sending him to an unknown destination, God identified finally this other land. It's a place called Canaan. And then God declared that through Abram and his wife Sarai that they would have so many descendants, they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Here's what's weird about that, though. Sarai is unable to have children. And even though Abram was old and Sarai was old and barren, even though these things were true of them, Abraham believed the promise of God. It looked ridiculous to anyone on the outside, but Abram believed and so then when Abram and Sarai were old, God confirmed his promise of a son. He changed Abram's name to Abraham, Sarai's name to Sarah, and Abram's name, Abraham, means the father of many nations. And then God gave him circumcision as the sign of his covenant. So what does Scripture say? What does it say about Abraham's justification? Paul quotes from Genesis 15, 6, and he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Paul doesn't have to build some elaborate argument that skirts around foundational, doctrinal, or theological matters to arrive at his conclusion. Paul just goes and looks at what the Scripture says, and Abraham believed, and it was credited to him for righteousness. You have to remember that when Abraham met God, he was not a righteous man. His ancestors Enoch and Noah, when we meet them in the early pages of the book of Genesis, they're described to us as righteous people, but not Abraham. He's not righteous. He's not godly. He's not special. He's probably not the one you and I would have chosen for the task God gave him. He lives in Ur of the Chaldeans. There's no Baptist church in Ur of the Chaldeans, no gospel church there whenever Abraham's growing up. Like all the people around him, he was an idolater. They didn't just worship a false god. They worshiped many false gods. Abraham isn't a man with latent potential. Or he's not some seeker alone looking for God in the universe while everyone else chases after their own flesh. He is a rebel and unrighteous and ungodly. He is not the man we would have chosen. And yet he was justified. Because this ungodly man believed the promise of a gracious God. Paul tries to help us understand this more in verse 5. He says, look, when we interact with God, it's not like we're interacting with an employer. 
Right? With your employer, you earn your paycheck. That's not a gift. That's what you've earned. That's not how justification works. Justification is not something we've earned. Rather, it's the free gift of God. And if that's not convincing enough, and if Abraham isn't convincing enough, well, Paul next brings in David. And he quotes from Psalm 32 as if David himself is speaking of the blessing of being justified by faith. He quotes him, verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Both Abraham and David are examples of those who were ungodly but then declared righteous through faith. And that's good news for all of us. God loves you. We are sinners and God loves us. Even though we are guilty of every conceivable sin. You remember the, the long list of sin that, uh, Paul describes starting in chapter 1, verse 18, going all the way through chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans. We're guilty of all of that and more. And God loves you. And that love doesn't change. It's powerful. It's transformational. It's everlasting. Listen to what J.I. Packer once wrote about God's love for sinners. He said this. He said, no one can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind. God justified you with his eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you for Jesus' sake. And the verdict which he passed then was and is final. God justified you with his eyes open. He declares you, though you are ungodly, He declares you righteous. What a miracle that is. How often do you deal with feelings of defeat from sin? Or maybe feelings of distance from God? It's easy for us to condemn ourselves or to define ourselves only by our failures. And when we begin to do that, we have an adversary, our enemy, the devil, who will then multiply and intensify those accusations against ourselves. Yeah, all you do is mess up all the time. What's wrong with you? Maybe you're not even saved. Do you feel saved? You probably don't feel saved. If you don't feel saved, how can you be saved? Yeah, all the time you hear Cody say it's impossible to come into contact with the God of creation and be unchanged. What's changed about you? Nothing must not be saved. You, have, you play that game with yourself. We do that all the time. We have to believe the Word of God. What does Scripture say to the Christian who struggles in that way? Well, we just read that God makes the ungodly righteous. He declares them righteous. What else does Scripture say? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. And so I want to get that in my heart, whatever it takes. I, I want to get that gospel truth in me so that I don't live under the accusation of a defeated enemy, but I live in the declaration of a gracious God who has called me righteous. And so I'm going to commit Romans 4, 5 to memory, at least that phrase, God declares the ungodly righteous. And I'm going to repeat that to myself over and over until I believe it. Until I really believe it. 
that I believe the Word of God over my feelings. I let the Word of God dictate my assurance and my strength and my comfort. And then with Rome, or 2 Timothy 2.13, I'm going to remember that over and over. I'm going to sin. I'm going to mess up. But when I'm faithless, He remains faithful. He's going to hold me secure all the way. We, we've sung these words many times many times. Words like this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Do you know who you are in Christ? You're a child of God, loved, adored, cherished, rescued, reconciled, cleansed, forgiven, protected and righteous and righteous and righteous from ungodly to righteous by the declaration of God at your faith in Jesus Christ. It's glorious. You're different. You're changed, eternally changed by the gracious work of God from ungodly to righteous. So justification by faith changes us from those who praise ourselves to those who praise God, from those who are ungodly to those who are righteous by God's declaration. And the final change is a change from one people to all people. From one people to all people. So here in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul once again turns his attention to the covenant mark of circumcision. It is impossible to overstate the importance of this covenant symbol in Jewish life. It was the way that one would identify himself as a child of God, as a part of the covenant community. The question was not, what's the condition of your heart? The question was, what's the condition of your skin? And if the mark is right, then your identity must be right. And we've already heard Paul, back in chapter 2, bring this under fire to say it's not circumcision of the flesh that matters. It's circumcision of the heart that God seeks after in his children. And so Paul says here essentially the same thing that he said there in chapter 2. The outward mark means nothing if the inside is under the rule of sin. And how was Abraham justified? And when was Abraham justified? He wasn't justified at the time that he cut his flesh. Rather, he was justified by faith long before he held the covenant symbol. And as it was for Abraham, so it is for all of us. If God's going to rescue Abraham by faith, he's going to do that for anyone else who would believe. So look at the middle of verse 11. Paul says, this was to make him, that's Abraham, the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. So since Abraham was justified by faith as an uncircumcised non-Jew, so are all people justified. This was a question the early church wrestled with in a very, very serious way. The question was, does a person have to be circumcised in order to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ? If you were to turn to Acts chapter 15, verse 1, the question is put right in front of you. That's the question. Is it faith plus the covenant symbol that saves a person? And through vigorous debate and searching and prayer, there was agreement and understanding in the early church 
that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Those who come from non-Jewish backgrounds do not need to become Jewish in order to become Christian. We become God's children through faith and faith alone. How important do you think it was for the church in Rome to hear this news? How encouraging must this have been for a church that was probably made up of a majority of people who came from non-Jewish backgrounds? Paul is saying here we have a church of people from so many different places, so many different backgrounds, but it's one church, one body, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so what that means practically for you and I today is that the church of Jesus Christ is a place of radical unity around the cross of Christ. When I say radical unity, I mean it doesn't matter your social status, your economic level, your home address, your nationality, your ethnicity, or your language. Christ has made one body out of many members. Today, we are not the one church that's meeting. We know there are churches that are gathering and worshiping all across the South Shore and greater Boston area, but we belong to a family that covers the entire globe. Just in Boston alone today... There are Southern Baptist churches like ours that are meeting and worshiping in 29 different languages. But with one heart, all of us together are exalting Jesus Christ, boasting in the God of our salvation. And across this globe, though there are people from very different backgrounds and very different stories than your own, our hearts are connected to one another because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why you have brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And that's why your heart breaks for the condition of the church in Afghanistan. And that's why you pray feverishly for the church in China. And that's why you care about what happens to Christians in Niger. These are your brothers and sisters. It's our family. I love that the body of Christ is made up of people from every possible scenario, background, and place. It reminds me always of Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle John gives us a picture of the throne room of God and gathered around this throne where Jesus Christ, the sacrificed lamb, is being worshipped are people of every tribe and language and people and nation. I heard a pastor say recently that he, he thinks about that scene or about glory that we won't speak in different languages. We'll all speak the same language. And that's entirely possible. I don't, I don't know any more than he does. His argument was that uh, one language unifying everyone was God's original design in the garden. And the introduction of different languages was a, a response to the sinfulness and the pride of mankind. That's a convincing argument. Here's my guess. You can chuck this out the window. It means nothing. It's just a guess. I think if God can just as easily give us one new language in glory that we can all speak and understand. I think he can just give us understanding of every possible language because your heart language is vitally important to your identity and your knowledge of the gospel and how you came to know Christ. And so I think when we stand around the throne and we recreate this scene in Revelation chapter 5, I think, Cody thinks, we will hear everyone praising the Lamb in their own heart language, and we will have perfect understanding of the songs that are being sung in Spanish and Portuguese and Khmer and Chinese 
and Bostonian English in every other language under the sun. We will hear, we will understand, and together with one voice, we will praise the Lamb who is worthy to receive riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We will boast in Him, the Lamb, who is worthy of our praise because He purchased us for God by His blood. It's a change. It comes through faith in Christ. We're united to each other because of our faith in Christ. So an objector might say, what good does belief do? As if all that's happening is just a, a change in doctrine or some intellectual assent. Well, Paul's told us the difference that justification by faith makes in a person's life. It changes us from people who praise ourselves to those who praise God, from those who are ungodly to those who are righteous, from one people to all people. We could put it this way also. We could say before faith in Christ or without faith in Christ, we are boastful, ungodly, and exclusionary. But by faith in Christ, we are worshipers and we are declared righteous and we are part, part of a giant, diverse, unified family. So Paul's made it clear today that, that we're not to boast in ourselves. We have no grounds of self-exaltation since our salvation is through faith in Christ. And even though we're not to boast in ourselves, there is a type of boasting that should characterize the Christian's life. Just in Romans alone, Paul's going to go, in, go on to describe to us and encourage us to boast in God, to boast in Christ, and to boast in our afflictions. In our worship today, you just practiced, we just practiced boasting in God through song. That's what we did together. And that's the kind of boasting that should characterize the Christian life. Those who are bought by the blood of Christ have every reason to boast in Christ. And in the New Testament, this sort of boasting happens in two different directions. We boast about God to God, and we boast about God to others. And I want to challenge you in the week ahead to do both of these things. Here's my challenge to you, my homework to you. I challenge you to boast about God to God. What does that look like? Well, the book of Jeremiah helps us. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, God gives this instruction to us. He says, the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. So in your praying this week, give extra time and attention to praising God for his faithful love, for his justice, for his righteousness, and for every other lovely thing you know about him and you have received from him. Set aside pointed time to praise God for being your God. And, and I don't, I would encourage you to do this. Don't just make that a small part of a bigger prayer and then the bulk of that rest of prayer is praying for things and, or interceding for the needs of others. Set aside time just praise the Lord. In prayer this week, would you praise God for being God? In personal worship, would you set aside time on your own to lift your voice, to sing, to praise Him? So your challenge is to praise God 
for being your God. And then the second challenge is to boast to someone else about God. Paul did this. He gave us an example in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2. He said to the Corinthian church, he said, I boast about you to the Macedonians. I go to these people and I say, let me tell you about these Corinthian believers. I've got some reasons to praise them because of what God is doing in and through them. And so I want you to think even now about the story you have from God that you can share with someone else. How can you praise God to another person? Think about this. How has God been meeting your need? How has He been helping you in a hard time? How has He answered your prayer? How has He helped you in your sickness? How has He given you a church that you love? Or how has He renewed your hope? What's the thing God has done that is praiseworthy? And I want you to think specifically about that story, and then I want you to tell one person this week. Don't just leave it to chance either. Make it happen. Be super intentional. At the risk of being awkward, just, hey, I got a story I got to tell you. You've got no idea how good God has been to me this week. I want to give you this story real quick. And you tell it. Praise God. Boast in Him to another person. Just one person this week. It can be more than one person, but let's just set the goal at one and let's see what happens. And then the next time we read this passage, we'll hear Paul's opening question, chapter 3, verse 27, and we'll be ready with an answer. Paul will say, where then is boasting? And we'll say, ah, ha, ha, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Do you boast in the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to talk to you for just a moment. In this argument that Paul's given us this morning is an invitation to you. He's described your heart, that apart from God, you, apart from faith in Christ, you would fall under the description of ungodly. And, and you might say, that doesn't sound like something a loving God would say, especially because, look, I'm, I'm not a, a super bad person and, and I, I do good things. I've got a, a sort of religious resume. I, I do pray or I, I have been baptized, I've had, whatever the thing is. And, and to that, the scripture says, where is your boasting? Are, are you going to bring these things before God and say, look what I've done that's better than the crucifixion of your son? Look at what I've done that serves me better than Christ crucified and risen again. Are you, going, are you really going to put your confidence in that? Because you shouldn't. I'm not saying you're a horrible person. I'm saying you're someone who needs Jesus. And he's so important. Salvation goes through no one else but him. He's the one and only God the Son, the perfect sacrifice and only sacrifice for our sins. You're a sinner. All of us are sinners. And, and God requires payment for that sin. And so Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. He's the sinless son of God, but he was held accountable for every sin you've committed or will commit. And his promise to you is this, that if you'll put your faith in him, if like Abraham you'll believe, if like Paul you'll believe, if like so many other men and women in this room you will believe, you will be saved, you'll be justified, you will be declared righteous by God, and that declaration never changes. And so the, the decision is yours to make today. 
you've heard the good news. You've heard this gospel. The invitation is to you, and God is asking you, lay down your boasting and instead boast in the Lord and what he's done for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the scriptures and what they say to us, that through faith in Christ, we are a people who are transformed and changed. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that as we consider these things, we would recognize the power of the gospel that has taken us from death to life and given us a new life to live in the here and now. So help us to reflect these changes in the ways we live, that we would uphold the law, that we would live according to your commands as a response to our free salvation through faith in Christ. God, I pray that we would reflect the beauty of heaven in the here and now, that place of every nation and people, tribe and language. Lord, let it be so here at South Shore Baptist Church. When we gather and as we pray and as we think about the global church, let us think of ourselves as one family under Christ. And God, for the friend in here that doesn't know you, they don't know Christ as their Savior, this morning you've been so good to them. In your kindness, you have given them your word and your invitation. God, awaken faith in them that today they would be declared righteous and they would be your child forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing together.